Let's pray as we begin. Thank you, Father, for this time we have together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who spoke to us so practically about how to live faithfully as citizens of your kingdom. We pray that you will help us understand, fill us with your Holy Spirit, give us the faith to follow you and to live according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in recent weeks, we've been working our way through uh, the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we believe that this book, the epistle to the Romans, is good. It's instructive for all Christians, but we feel a special kinship to Paul's letter to the Romans because it's a letter written to Christians, to a church in a capital city. Rome was the capital of the world when Paul wrote this letter. And he, um, he believed, of course, that someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Rome's days were numbered. Paul knew that at the time. But Paul was no anarchist. And Paul was going to make use of the Roman Empire, its infrastructure, its systems, in order to take the good news of Jesus around throughout the world. So he was counting on the Roman Empire, still holding together for a while, and he had a plan for how he was going to wrap up in Asia and move to the western frontier, onto Spain. And we'll hear about that when we get to Romans 15. But Paul wrote to the church in Rome, knowing that they were strategically positioned as an embassy of King Jesus in the imperial capital city. They were the hands and feet and voice of Jesus in a way that would have an impact throughout the empire. How they embodied the Christian faith would have real lasting consequences throughout the world. And that's why I think we should have a very uh, special kinship with this letter. We ought to pay uh, close attention to this letter as, uh, as a church here on Capitol Hill. We have a very high calling as an embassy of Jesus in this particular city. He's given us a special assignment, a special placement here in, in Washington, D.C., commissioning us to be ambassadors, his ambassadors in this capital city of the Western world. We're called to practice kingdom diplomacy. That's what this whole series is about, kingdom diplomacy in our lives in Washington. And we're learning from Paul's letter to the Romans better how to do it. So we come to today's passage, and our focus today is on unity within our diplomatic core. Unity within our diplomatic core. We're a diverse body, our church. We reflect a range of backgrounds and experiences. Some of us are marathoners here. Some of us have lived here for decades. This is home to us. Others are sprinters here just here for a brief season and then going back home or going on to some other place. Um, We're also at different points in our journeys of faith. Some of us are wise old saints, some are new believers, some are just dipping a toe in the water of Christianity. And given all of this diversity, teamwork is really complicated for us. It's especially complicated for us because we're so different, we're so spread out. And particularly after two years of pandemic chaos and moving into a new building and all of the changes that have taken place with our congregation, it's hard to even know one another, much less 
to be a tightly knit team. And we need to be this kind of team. It's very important for our mission as an embassy of Jesus Christ. We must have unity as a team. I was reading about the Vietnam War this week, and one of the things that really struck me was how many different groups, different agencies were on the ground in Vietnam from the United States um, were in Vietnam during the war. It is, it is really startling to read how many were there. Uh, there was, of course, the official diplomatic presence in the American embassy in Saigon. There was also our secret intelligence presence there through the CIA. We also deployed something called the Joint United States Public Affairs Office as a kind of American response to communist propaganda. Um, there was also a huge relief effort there through USAID. And then there were 2.7 million US soldiers who were there fighting in the war. And what's so striking about that period, if you read about it, is this wide range of opinions about what America should be doing and, and the opinions were being voiced by the people there. Some of them were extreme hawks, some of them were extreme doves, and there were a lot of different positions in between. And they were speaking out and saying what they thought America, so there was no united voice at all amongst all of these people representing America in Vietnam. One Western diplomat said in 1966, this isn't so much an American foreign war as it is another American civil war. That's how divided the people were. And if you compare the real unity of the, of the United States in the World War II era to this massive disunity in the Vietnam era, you can see why Vietnam was such a colossal failure for our country. One of Paul's main concerns in writing to the church in Rome was unity for this very reason. Skin color wasn't much of a divide back then. It was ethnic disunity, particularly along the fault line of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. That's most likely what Paul was talking about in today's passage when he speaks of eating or not eating, drinking or not drinking. Jewish dietary practices, eating kosher, that sort of thing, um, made it really hard to have a potluck supper together. It was really hard to get everybody together. People would bring food, but you had to keep it separate. And then, you know, the Gentiles could eat the Jews' food, but the Jews couldn't eat the Gentiles' food. And that wasn't fair, and everybody was quarreling. And it just, it didn't, it didn't work very well. And um, it, it felt unfair to everybody involved. Now, a few years prior to Paul's letter, Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. It's very likely that before that happened, there had been these simmering ethnic tensions in the church in Rome before everybody, uh, before all the Jews were kicked out of the city. But then came the purge, and so for a while the church was Gentiles only, and then Claudius died, Nero came to power, and when Nero came to power, the Jews were allowed to come back into Rome, and so then they were, presumably, the Christians were reintegrated at that point, and it's very likely that the tensions really came to a head when the, when the Jews came back and the Gentiles had been worshiping without them for a while. So one of Paul's aims in writing this letter to the church in Rome is reconciliation, really trying to encourage them 
to be unified, just as disunity undermined the American uh, response to the crisis in Vietnam, disunity was also imperiling the church's witness in Rome. And disunity is a tremendous threat to our mission here. Kingdom diplomacy is why we are stationed here. It's why you have been brought to this city to be a diplomat for Jesus. It ought to be our most important priority, but it often takes a back burner to other things, to our career ambitions, our American political allegiances, our personal preferences. There's lots of reasons that we become divided from one another. So how can we genuinely unite together despite our many differences? Let's take a look at this passage and you'll see in verse 13 uh, the kind of header, the, the uh, big picture of what Paul is saying here. We've, our focus ought to be on helping rather than hindering one another. Paul says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. In the original Greek, Paul uses the word for judgment twice here to make a clever pun that our English translations usually pass over or miss. And essentially what he's saying, using this word judgment twice, is that we should stop judging one another in a divisive way, and we should start judging in a unifying way. Paul wants us to put our judgment skills to better use in discerning how to keep from irritating or annoying one another, basically. In other words, and here's the big idea of today's passage, think of a Christian believer with whom you're in regular contact who aggravates you. Now, this is not some high-profile person in the media. This is someone that you know and you're in contact with on a regular basis. Uh, maybe somebody in the same church as you. Maybe it's someone that you work with or go to school with. Maybe it's somebody who lives in your apartment building or in your neighborhood. Someone that you're rubbing shoulders with on a regular basis. And now consider why do they drive you crazy? What's, what's causing it? Is it heresy? Is it immorality? Is it some first order issue? If so, well then you have, you have good reason to be frustrated. But if, on the other hand, it is some secondary matter, well then, this, this Paul, is, Paul is speaking to you right now about this issue. If it's not a primary matter, if they're genuinely committed to following Jesus, same as you, then it's likely that whatever you find irritating is something that you should figure out how to make room for, even if you're convinced that they're mistaken about it. Stop judging them over it, Paul says. That's step one. And then step two is to judge yourself how to help them instead. It's this pivot from disunity to teamwork that's right at the heart of Romans 14. Blessing instead of cursing, welcoming instead of avoiding, adding instead of dividing. This pivot from division to unity is good for everyone. 
It helps the entire team, as Paul goes on to say in the rest of the chapter. And he gives us two reasons. The first reason in, in this paragraph, 14 through 19, is that it's good for the other person. And then the second reason in the second paragraph is that it's good for you. Let me show you a little bit more as we read through it. In the first paragraph, verses 14 to 19, we should make room for one another because it's good for them. Look at what Paul says in the first part of verse 14. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And Paul here is simply reiterating Jesus' teaching. You find this in the Gospels here and there as Jesus talks about the, basically the kosher practices of the Jews. And Jesus says, it's not what we put into our mouths that makes us unclean, but it's what's coming out of our hearts that make us unclean. Um, you may remember how this teaching is vividly reaffirmed for Peter in a vision that he has uh, of all kinds of unclean food coming down from heaven, and he's told that he can eat of it. And then Peter, acting on that vision, goes and, and is in, he's engaged in mission with Cornelius. Peter, the Jew, goes to Cornelius, the um, Roman centurion's house, and he uh, shares the good news of Jesus with him. And it's very important that Peter lose some of his kosher inhibitions so that he can go into this Gentile's house and share the good news there. It was an important moment in the book of Acts. And now Paul, the former Pharisee, is saying the same thing. Paul knows and is persuaded, he says, by the Lord Jesus. Jesus has persuaded him of this principle that non-kosher food is not unclean in and of itself. It's okay for Christians to eat it with one exception. Look at the end of verse 14 where Paul says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And what he's saying here is non-kosher food is okay except for those young Jewish converts to Christianity who have yet to sort this out for themselves until they too are persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, non-kosher food remains truly unclean to them. Now there's an underlying principle here that applies to a lot more than what we eat and drink. And the larger principle is that Christian maturity takes time. And the ways that we grow as Christians are rarely uniform. Just as some boys have to start shaving at age 12 or 13, and I'm still in my 50s waiting for puberty to kick in. <laughs> in the same way, Christian discipleship has varying pace and order for all people. It happens differently for everybody, especially when it involves separating out the good from the bad from your cultural upbringing, from your childhood. It's especially different. We're coming along at different speeds. Here's a modern application of this principle involving what we eat and drink. I am convinced and persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ that it is perfectly okay to drink alcoholic beverages, particularly because the Bible explicitly says that Jesus drank wine on multiple occasions, and his first miracle, by the way, was a massive wine fest, right? So I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that it is okay, but we are a diverse congregation, 
coming together from all over the world. Our members include people from contexts, coming from contexts where drinking alcohol may be regarded as unwise or poor stewardship or even demonic. Not to mention people who grew up around alcoholic parents or people who struggle with alcoholism themselves. And so there are a whole host of reasons, some better than others, why on some occasions, instead of judging my brother or sister for being a teetotaler, I should judge how myself I should order water instead of whiskey or wine, right? That's the principle at work here. That's what Paul is saying. Sometimes you have to make that decision for the good of your brother or sister. Or here's, here's another application, another modern application involving something potentially much more divisive in our context. I am convinced and persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that when it comes to American political candidates, an obviously correct Christian choice is exceedingly rare. With presidential candidates, for example, it is really difficult to know how to weigh experience and character and party affiliation and professed personal faith and platform and all of these different things that are always jumbled together. And so I believe that we should say our prayers and complete our ballots knowing that who we vote for isn't our most important political activity as Christians. Yet again, we are a diverse congregation. Some are convinced, for example, that abortion is the single most important American political issue towering above all others. And for them, it is, it is really unclean for a Christian to cast a vote for any pro-abortion candidate. Others are convinced that racial justice is the highest priority in our land right now. And for them, it may be unclean to vote or support a candidate whose positions on the social safety net or the criminal justice system disadvantage people of color. And in any case, who we vote for or work for here in this congregation in American politics must not divide us as a congregation. It must not divide us as a congregation. Look at the passage again, verses 15 and 16. Paul goes on to say, if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. It sounds to me like a, a lot like Psalm 1. Paul says that there are really two paths that you can take, and we have to choose wisely between the two paths. One path involves actually laying a trap for other Christians, putting stumbling blocks in their way, in the road before them. And that way leads to destruction, because it trips them up as they try to follow King Jesus. Don't choose that path because it will undermine our united diplomatic efforts. Take the other way instead, Paul says, the one that he describes as walking in love. That's the path that will lead our brothers and sisters to flourishing in faith. They'll be like trees planted by streams of water. 
See, how we treat one another is so much more important than what we eat or drink. It's so much more important than who we vote for. How we treat one another matters so much. We should live in such a way that we clear the path for others in our church, especially those who are younger in the faith. And the reason that this is so important isn't just for the, the benefit of individual brothers and sisters. The larger aim is teamwork flowing out of the cumulative effects of our congregational unity. Paul gets to this in verse 17. It's one of the times he talks about the kingdom of God. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, Paul says, our greater objective is the coming kingdom of God. How we treat one another is central to our diplomatic mission. It puts God's coming kingdom on display for the world. So the citizens of Rome can see what the kingdom is like because of the way we treat one another. That's more important than what you eat or drink. And what I really hope you'll see is that this larger diplomatic mission isn't somehow disconnected from the gospel. Do you see how, how tightly intertwined they are? What Paul does here is actually return to the heart of the gospel and the central theme of his whole letter to the Romans. How do rebellious men and women like us reconcile with God? How do we attain righteousness and peace and joy? It's not by teetotaling or by keeping kosher or by voting for the right political candidate or by being nice or generous or tolerant or beautiful or any other of the many characteristics or behaviors that appease the people around us. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ, by giving ourselves utterly and completely to him as our King and Lord. Nice people do not automatically have peace with God. It's only when Jesus becomes our King do we become reconciled to God. And then because our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we have real unity in following and serving him together. It draws us together as one family. Our community then becomes a compelling demonstration of God's coming kingdom and the gospel and politics are fused together. Do you see? Our diplomatic mission here is right at the heart of the gospel. Paul goes on to say, verses 18 and 19, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, living in a way that clears the path for others in our church makes God happy, and it also gets the attention of a weary and watching world. That's the sweet spot. It doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes there's opposition, right? Um, but staying faithful to the one whom you represent should make a very positive impression to the watching world. So that's Paul's first point in the first paragraph, that we should make room for one another because it's really good for them. Second paragraph, starting in um, verse 20, it's also good for you. Paul reiterates a lot of his prior argument in this paragraph. I want to focus in on one verse, verse 22. This is the key verse in my opinion. He says, the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Paul wrote a lot of letters 
We have 13 of them recorded in the New Testament in all of his letters that we have passed down to us. This is his only beatitude right here. And the way it's rendered in English is more than a little confusing. (laughs) His overall point is one that we've heard many times before, that the gifts aren't as important as the giver. The greatest blessing of the Christian life isn't our freedom in Jesus, but it's Jesus himself. Because at the end of the day, there's no blessing that comes from causing a brother or sister to stumble. For this reason, we sometimes need to keep our choices between us and God, practicing Christian liberty privately rather than flaunting it for everybody to see, especially in front of uh, brothers and sisters who are weaker in the faith. I really don't need to keep a bottle of bourbon on my desk at the church, nor do I, I need to put the bumper sticker on, of my favorite presidential candidate on the front door of my office, you know? It's just not helpful. It's just not helpful. I should keep these matters private, Paul says, not only for the sake of my weaker brothers and sisters, but also for my sake. And here's the reason this is good for me too, Rephrasing Paul's beatitude, blessed are they who don't twist their faith into a brazen display of Christian liberties. Blessed are they who don't twist their faith into a brazen display of Christian liberties. What happens sometimes is that we become so convinced of Jesus' power to save us from sin and death that we begin to take it for granted And particularly, this is the case amongst evangelical Protestants, particularly in the Reformed evangelical Protestant world. The message of the gospel can get boiled down into a kind of salvation from legalism. Do I hear an amen? (laughs) You'll hear rightly in these contexts that we're all dead in our sins and that Jesus can redeem us. But then you'll also hear wrongly that Christians can and should go ahead and sin boldly because our greatest witness to the world and to one another is our freedom in Christ. That's wrong. That's unhelpful. And what, what happens often then is that faith in Christ becomes an excuse to live selfishly in ways that put up stumbling blocks in the paths of others. And not only is that bad for our brothers and sisters, Paul says, but it's also bad for us. Opposite of the, of the uh, beatitude is a curse. Cursed are they who prioritize their freedom over their faith. Blessed are they who don't twist their faith into a brazen display of Christian liberties. So what Paul is saying here in this passage that we're looking at this morning in summary is that when it comes to secondary matters, we should make room for one another. It's good for them. It's good for us. And it's good for the world. One of the most influential books I have ever read is a little book. It's an old book. It's by Ernest House. And it's about William Wilberforce. I read it 30 years ago. And every time I find it in a used bookstore, I buy it and then I give it away again. A little book on William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce is usually given credit 
for the abolition of the slave trade in the early 19th century in England. And well, he should be because he was, he was the champion of this movement and he worked tirelessly for 40 years to see this change come to pass. But um, the delightful thing about this book that I read is that it talks about his church. It talks about Holy Trinity Church in Clapham, a little village on the south side of the Thames. And that was where Wilberforce and his family lived, and that was where all of these other families lived, and they worshiped together. They were in that little church together most Sundays. They were led by one pastor and then another pastor, generations of different ministers uh, caring for them. Throughout the week, they were in one another's homes for breakfast and morning prayer, for dinner, for um, playing games, for singing hymns, and for strategizing about how they were going to have a common witness in London. They didn't agree on everything. They were often uh, taking different views. Some of them were allowed to vote. Most of them didn't have a vote. <laughs> um, some of them had a tremendous amount of money, but not all of them did. They worked in a whole variety of fields. They had different views on secondary matters of theology. If you read about this group of Christians, knowing who was there at the time, you'll be really surprised at how diverse they were. But together, somehow, they were able to unify in love for one another. In fact, a lot of their kids grew up marrying one another, and that's a very fascinating story. But they, they were unified with one another in such a way that everybody was watching them together in their common witness to the world. In fact, they came to be known as the Clapham Sect. It was kind of a derisive name for them, the Clapham Sect. And why? Because they were all so single-minded that Jesus was their king. And because of it, Wilberforce had the support he needed in the fight to abolish the slave trade which was good for England, it was good for the world. That's the focus here, unity in our mission as Christ's ambassadors. It ought to be a much higher priority for us all. It ought to affect real changes in the way that we seek to know one another and to love one another. So I encourage you to make room for one another. Believe me, it's good for them. It's good for you. It's good for our city. It's good for the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, for speaking to us through the Apostle Paul. Now we pray that you'll help us live faithfully according to your word. Give us the power to love one another as you love us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.